welcome to the Great American Novel Podcast. I'm Scott Yarbrough. And I'm Kirk Kerna. The book we're discussing today, A Great American Novel, is Their Eyes Are Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And this book has a very interesting life story to it, both that inspired it and uh, the sort of posthumous reclamation of it that occurred. It is a it is not necessarily unique in the sense that it was rediscovered years later. We talked about that with uh, Moby Dick, and it tends to be sort of the idea that the novel is too good to be or too advanced to be understood in its own time. But uh, certainly with Their Eyes We're Watching God, we're talking a lot of issues about inclusivity and expanding the canon. And uh, the rediscovery of this book has become kind of the uh, prima, prima facie case of why that expansion is necessary to revise sort of criteria about what a GAN is and uh, who gets that who gets that title. Right. And it's interesting because this is a novel that shows how the political context of any given time and place that a book is produced has a lot to do with how it's received and whether it's considered worthy of canonization or not. And as those context shifts, so does someone's understanding or appreciation for a book. So Zora Neale Hurston, although she's not born in Florida, she at a very early age is moved to Florida and raised in Eatonville, Florida, a very small community at that point, uh, near what would one day be the metropolis of Mickey Mouse, um, Orlando, Florida. And Eatonville, Kirk, as she relates in this novel, was a very, a fairly unique and a very interesting place. Well, it is the first uh, incorporated Black community in the United States, and so therefore has a lot of uh, historical uh, significance to it. I should mention she was born in Natasolga, Alabama, which is actually not too far from Montgomery, where I live. It's not too far from Tuskegee either. And contrasting Natasolga with Eatonville in terms of literary tourism, that's something I do in my classes because um, Natasolga has a, a basically a road marker announcing that that was the birth. And even though her first novel, Jonah's Gourd Vine, uh, takes partially place in a fictionalized version of Natasolga, there's very little there to remember her by. Mm. Now, part of that is she was. All but, an, all but a child when the family relocated to Eatonville. But Eatonville is, a, is, an, is an amazing story in terms of the way that a community uses a hometown author. Because in the late 80s, Florida and the sort of Mickey Mouse empire had created plans to expand the highway straight through Eatonville and, and in effect destroy the uh, historical appearance of that community for the sake of, let's be honest, pretty much white tourism. Right. And a group of community members got together and essentially their strategy for saving the city was to create the Zora Neale Hurston Center that has been there for uh, 32 years now. And in fact, even though Eatonville is economically a, a fairly disadvantaged place, the Zora Fest that occurs there every year is by far, I think, the largest and the most uh, significant festival centered around an author in the United States. So that's no small accomplishment for the now, folks in that community. And I will tell you, growing up in Florida, um, although from the northern part of the state, which is very indistinguishable from southern Georgia or southern Alabama, there are multiple public facilities throughout the center part of the state named for Zora Neale Hurston. So mm -hmm. she has truly become, a, at least in that part of the country, a fairly much a household name. In fact, Fort Pierce, where she died, has done a magnificent job of creating uh, an entire walking, biking, automobiling tour of sites uh, centered around her final years there, which were not her best years. No. And uh, that community has looked to Eatonville as a kind of model to see how they can capitalize upon Zora Neale Hurston. She's a rare, rare example of a 
author, kind of like Hemingway, who has multiple cities associated with her, certainly with New York, but also we tend to forget Washington, D.C. because she was a student at Howard. Right. And to briefly clarify, before we go on to Howard, we should point out that Eatonville's uh, as a first incorporated all-Black town, it actually means the sheriff's uh, deputies and the uh, school superintendent and the postmaster and all these different people were all African-American. So the kind of interactions we associate with the segregationist Jim Crow South were, while not completely foreign to Eatonville, it was less part of what you dealt with growing up there than, say, if you were 75 miles away in uh, Tampa, Florida, or or somewhere like that, where it would be much more part of it. And so her interests as she gets older are a little different than so many African-American writers at the time. So even before she goes to Howard, she goes to Baltimore to get into an elite high school associated with Morgan College. And she had to do something a little sneaky to get into that high school. Kirk, what was that? She had to shave a decade off of her life. She was actually 26 and posed as 16 in order to get into uh, public schooling there and get the credentials she needed to get into college. Scholars often refer to her to this as her lost decade. Uh, there's very little, there's no references to her on any public records from that period, from that decade. So really what it all means is you have an, an author, there's been an amazing amount of detective work that has been done trying to track down exactly what she did. And the reality is she was probably doing um, kind of menial or housekeeping uh, right. labor just to get by. But the reason she had to do that and spend all those formative years working was because her uh, her mother died when she was relatively young. Her father remarried very quickly. And the family did not get along with the uh, stepmother. In fact, there was a, a instance of a fight in which uh, Zora nearly killed her new stepmother and was sent away and banished. And I think that whole notion of shaving a decade off of your life gave her in her sort of persona that she presented to the world, which was so important in the 1920s. Right. Honestly, much more so than her writing, because we often forget that her novels, she did not begin publishing novels until the 1930s. So even though she was doing a lot of short stories and very important essays in the 20s, she was really sort of more of a celebrity in that period. And I think her theatricality was a large part due to that notion of if I can get away with lying about my age, what can I not get away with? <laughs> well, imagine how much cooler you would have been in high school if you'd been 27 years old. <laughs> the, uh, well. I, I knew a lot more at 27 than I did at 17, I think. Well, when she went to Howard College, she earned a scholarship to Bernard, the women's wing of Columbia at the time, and worked in anthropology with Frank Boaz. And he, of course, was the, he's known for many things in cultural anthropology but one of those is flatly rejecting any notions of white supremacy due to simple genetics or some kind of perceived purity of people of European descent, but rather pointing out how people from Africa had been subjected to colonialism and then brought over as, as slaves and all the things this could do to a culture and har- all the harmful effects it could have. And he and she became pretty attached to each other. And she worked with him as an assistant and uh, was interested in going on into graduate work, although she didn't go far with that. But while living up there in New York and in Harlem, she does meet all the time in college. And then some of these studies, Frank Bo as members of the Harlem Renaissance. There is a great book that I highly recommend uh, if you're interested in her relationship with Boaz and then all of his influence on anthropology and the way that affected uh, notions of race. It's called Gods of the Upper Air and uh, came out in 2019. Uh, It is by a historian 
named Charles King, a very readable book, but King makes the point that she was one of a circle of students that also included Margaret Mead. So Boaz had a huge influence, but the anthropological approach to literature is maybe one of the main things that distinguishes Hurston from any of her contemporaries. A lot of her work is about, you know, and I'm talking the fiction here, is about incorporating African-American folklore into plots in ways that will um, later on become the norm. Toni Morrison will really be the one that kind of, I think, revitalizes that with Song of Solomon. But uh, it it demonstrated the idea that these folk tales uh, were essential to African-Americans' notion of uh, identity, but also their cultural interactions. And today we tend to think, take for granted some of those discoveries that she, well, she didn't really discover them, but she helped popularize them. Things like playing the dozens and, you know, sort of the verbal gamesmanship sure. that white people simply really didn't have any clue to until she began dramatizing them. And it, it also is fascinating because since she's approaching all these things with kind of the long view of anthropology. And she's very, in most of her writing, distinct from many of her peers. And there's almost no sentimentality at all. So she doesn't romanticize any kind of culture, including um, Southern poor Black culture. She instead is kind of presenting it as she saw it, which leads her to making some interesting choices at times. And certainly one of her great collections of essays on, you know, sociological study of pulp waters, uh, African-American pulp waters from the middle of Florida uh, called a mules and men gives you a lot of insight to her interest and in, in what she's working in. But she finally, after writing a lot that her semi-autobiographical Jonas Gordvine in 34, she publishes a mules and men in 35. She finally writes their eyes were watching God in 1937. And by this point in time, she had established herself as kind of an iconoclast among the members of the Harlem Renaissance. And I've always suspected that this had to do with her natural sense of confidence and her lack of willingness to be part of anybody's team, but to go her own way, Kirk, combined with her, again, studies in anthropology, where she's just not a belonger to a particular cause or movement. And if she is a belonger at this point, I think it's to uh, feminism. Yeah. More than to uh, a, a serious interest in the civil rights of Black Americans. And so that is the primary focus, of course, of their eyes watching God. And it does lead her up against Richard Wright and other of the more left-wing members of the Harlem Renaissance. One way of thinking about it is that her experience in Eatonville gave her a sort of, uh, I don't want to say a shield, but to live in an all-Black community and not be sort of rubbing up against all the time sort of the dominant white culture around you gave, I think, her an appreciation for experiencing and enjoying Black culture without the intrusion of the white gaze, if you want to call it that. So while other writers of that era were embarking upon the great migration and in a sense popularizing the idea that you had to get out of the south as a black person she really rooted herself or at least her fiction into into the south and was was celebrating um the community and it doesn't mean it's a happy story. There are a lot no. of ups and downs. You know, most people have probably had the experience of teaching her most anthologized short story, Gilded Six Bits, which is a story about adultery and forgiveness. But it's also a story that in the end makes the very important point that white people will never understand the inner life of black culture. Yes. Now, politically, what that meant was as we moved into the civil rights era, Hurston was in the very unique position of being anti-integration. She was anti-Brown versus Board of Education. And sometimes when you talk about these issues in classroom, 
people, students, young people aren't necessarily, they, they don't know really how to, to absorb this fact and take it all in. She was essentially a, a, a black conservative. And her opposition was that, you know, the idea of separate black schools, that was where black people really learned the history and the culture of their people. And for schools to be desegregated meant that they were going to lose that sort of purity of the, right. of the cultural experience. Well, and we still do have HBCUs today that are operating somewhat on that same principle. Mm-hmm. We still have women's colleges and women's preparatory schools today for those same reasons. And I, I don't know if we could just, she's definitely conservative in some aspects and maybe not in others. I think part of what she, where she pushed back against the men who were the kind of elite of the Harlem Renaissance is she saw them as somewhat sexist while they saw her as a bit of an uncle Tom or an auntie Tom in this case. Yeah. And maybe they're both a little bit right. I think part of it was she saw the new deal as a way of black communities always being held under a kind of thrall to white indulgence and white welfare and not having a way to stand on your own two feet. And so there's a lot of back and forth, but unfortunately she and her work were kind of early victims of cancel culture, right? More that since she didn't play ball with these guys and they were the ones who had a lot of control over which black writers did or did not get published or promoted. She was just kind of pushed out. And by that, you know, into the fifties era, she had faded almost totally into obscurity. Yeah. You know, the whole, the whole history really from the late 19th century on of African-American literature can be generalized. And I emphasize that word generalized as a conflict between two types of approaches to the black experience. On the one hand, are we going to have a literature of protest and of social action or at the opposite, are we going to have a purely aesthetic sort of treatment Mm. of the culture? And, you know, the great, the, the great conflict over their eyes were watching God was with her and Richard Wright. Richard Wright's review of this book, which is often published under the title Between uh, Laughter and Tears, basically accuses her of perpetuating a kind of feel-good minstrel show for white audiences that uh, celebrates the joviality, the uh the the game the games the fun the the happy parts of the black experience while being totally politically denuded and i think that part of that reflects the fact that richard wright had some women issues you know mm-hmm. he was not necessarily sensitive to the experience of black women but also that uh from the other side that uh hurston simply didn't didn't want to write about black pain and about black protest. She felt like that totally overlooked the way that black people interacted with each other. And again, that reflects a lot of that homogenous Eatonville experience. For years, her books start going out of print and she spends the latter years of her life in, again, menial labor, broke, working jobs as housekeepers, things like that. And finally dies, again, kind of unheralded and lone. Her grave, uh, famously, Alice Walker goes on a quest, finds her her grave in a small cemetery uh, down in Fort Pierce, and kind of inaugurates the great renewed interest in her work so that by the end of the 70s, all her books are back in print, and she is in all the anthologies. She's taught in all the classrooms, and now... If you go into any given bookstore in America that stocks literary fiction, and I know there's not a lot of that anymore, uh, but if you find such a place and you go in there, you'll see a lot more Zora Neale Hurston on the shelves than you will Richard Wright. Yeah, exactly. In the long run, she wins. And of course, one of the problems that you always ask about didactic novels is, is there a point where the didacticism overwhelms the art? And does it become too much a book of its time? but not one that can carry on into later generations. And I think, I do think Wright at his best probably overcomes that challenge, but at his worst, he certainly does not. And I think most people who've read Native Son 
are pretty aware there's a hundred page section at the end that could probably be pulled out altogether and left to the teachers to to handle when the communist attorney is lecturing people on how the young young man ended up in the jail cell. So the novel begins, Kirk, in a small town in North Florida. Well, the just to give a quick overview of the plot for those who may not uh, have have read it or read it recently, the way to think about this novel is this is a version of a Bildungsroman. It is a female Bildungsroman. You might think of it in some ways as a female Huckleberry Finn. Mm. It is a journey, uh, a one woman's journey through three marriages and the definitions of happiness in marriage and the disjunction between the reality of love and the uh, romance or the romanticization of it. And in the end, it's also a story about individuals and community because Jeannie is ostracized from the Eatonville community at the end. The, The novel is a frame story. It begins with Jeannie wandering back into Eatonville and the community gossiping about her because she has just been tried for the murder of her third husband, Tea Cake, and has been exonerated, but there's still a lot of gossip. And she starts to tell her life story to only one person who's really interested, and that is uh, uh, Phoebe. And it ends with her coming back around and uh, wrapping up the story with Phoebe. So it is a journey, and the nature of the journey is experience. To go to the horizon and back is, in a sense, the definition of the journey. It's not getting there. It's, it's having the experiences along the way that, that makes her wiser for what she's been through. Right. And that horizon is used two or three times in the novel. And there's a lot of very uh, interesting nature, symbolize, uh, nature, excuse me, nature symbolism throughout. When we ask ourselves, of course, what makes a novel great, we do talk about the themes and the plot and the notions. And of course, we actually do our criteria at the end of every podcast, but aesthetics is a big part of it. And there's a there's a great divide in this novel between the power of Hurston's prose and the voice of her omniscient narrator versus how she does the dialogue. And the dialogue is very much in a certain kind of tradition that starts with the local color writers of the 19th century and is upheld by people as diverse as uh, Bret Hart and Mark Twain and coming into African-American writers following that local color tradition like Charles Chestnut, so that when people speak, we, we render their dialogue through misspellings and vernacular renderings of phonetics so, for instance, a few pages in when she first starts talking to Phoebe, I don't mean to bother with telling them nothing, Phoebe. Taint worth the trouble. You can't tell them. No, when I read this out loud to students, of course, I don't really emphasize the misspellings. They can see it and we just speak of it. You can tell what I And so it is in that tradition. Yeah. And it is a tradition that kind of starts ending probably with all people, William Faulkner, who moves us away from that and uses a few misspellings as he goes to minimize it. And it's all more about word choice and you, and and, it, and it, grandiose word choice, grandiose I mean, word choice. Absolutely. No. On the other hand, just to, her prose as uh, Hurston's prose as this mission narrator, we see, you know, beautiful writing at times. So for example, we're here about Janie lying under the pear tree and how she was stretched on her back beneath the pear tree, soaking in the alto chant of the visiting bees the gold of the sun and the panting breath of the breeze when the inaudible voice of it all came to her. She saw a dust-bearing bee sink into the sanctum of a bloom. The thousand sister calyxes arched to meet the love embrace and the ecstatic shiver of the tree from root to tiniest branch, creaming in every blossom and frothing with delight. So this was a marriage. And of course, talk about birds and bees. She obviously plays a little bit of you know, mingling some Freudian sexual symbolism with nature symbolism sure. throughout the novel as well. But that, I think, is one of the things people love about the novel. They, they kind of tolerate the dialogue, but the narration and the narrative writing between dialogue is where a lot of the beauty and power of the text comes from. That disjunction between narrative style and, and the dialect of the dialogue, is uh, you see that often commented on. I think Hurston herself would say there's really 
no difference. Both are versions of poetry. The narrative voice is dramatizing the poetry of sensuality uh, and the connections to nature and looking at, in particular, a kind of sexual desire that is uh, wholly natural. The dialogue, what's tricky about Black dialect is the way that it is entangled with the minstrel show tradition. Mm. So if we had never had performers come out, uh, both Black and white, and cork up and exaggerate Black forms of speech, we would have no problem with this dialect. I mean, in in Mm. the same way that we usually have no problem with people rendering any any kind of dialect in fiction phonetically or or in whatever ways but the very fact that black speech gets stylized in the minstrel show and becomes really representative of un, unentangled uh, you can't you simply can't un, unentangle white perceptions of black dialect from the performance of black dialect and as a result of that we tend to be entirely uncomfortable with any kind of rendering of black dialect, which is unfortunate for Hurston because as an anthropologist, that was really what she was trying to preserve. The classic example of this that's come about in the, the last couple of years is uh, Hurston came to South Alabama and interviewed the man who was supposed to supposedly the oldest surviving member of the Clotilda, the final slave ship into the United States, snuck in to Mobile. And that book could not be published in the 1930s because she insisted on writing it in Cujo Lewis's style of speech. Mm. And the, you know, the, the prospective publisher, A, didn't understand it, but B, also felt that it would be misinterpreted in the marketplace. And, and so that's, that's one of the reasons that Wright went after her and complained that a lot of her fiction felt like a quote-unquote darky show because it was celebrating the rhythm and the song and the a lot of the slang going back and forth. And it's almost absolutely, when I think of Zora Neale Hurston, I think of all people, Dave Chappelle. You yeah. know, Dave, Dave Chappelle famously quit uh, his very innovative comedy show after a a sketch in which a white members of the crew laughed in at the rendering of a certain piece of black slang that Chappelle didn't think was funny in that way hmm. so it's it's very difficult for black artists and black performers does your style replicate the kinds of stereotypes that uh you as an artist want to dismantle? And that's a tough question. You know, I kind of have two responses. The first is, you're absolutely right. The scientist, social scientist part of her, which is so important to her as an artist, does mean she wants to capture the cadence and the beat and how people sound. And she's showing in the same way that Twain in Adventures of Huckleberry Finn has that statement at the beginning of the novel that his phonetic rendering of how people speak, including the various, uh, as he point refers to them, Negro dialects of slaves, is him saying, unlike Harriet Beecher Stowe and all these other people, I grew up among these people and I know them. I'm not making it up. She's doing the same thing. She's letting all these Northern audiences know I'm not some pretender in the Harlem Renaissance. I'm someone who really grew up with these guys and knows mm-hmm. what she's talking about. On the other hand, I also believe that you could render almost everyone's speech especially at a time before television kind of ironed out so many of our wrinkles with crazy phonetic renderings with the possible exceptions of Tom Brokaw and (laughs) Walter Cronkite. Almost everyone else speaks in some way with phonetic indications of where they come from and the way they speak certain words reflects the way people speak in their area or again, their, their race and their, their background, their class level. And you know this because when you talk to your parents or your, your relatives, you might have one kind of voice when you talk to students or you're on a podcast, you have another kind of voice. My kids make fun of me when I speak to my mother, because they say, you sounded really country and Southern then. And so I think one of the things that's 
regrettable about it is that where we really first start seeing this, it's always in rendering it by people who don't necessarily know how to do it in a way that's truly faithful. It's more they're just following certain stereotypes. Again, it only applies one way. We're not, right. you know, Twain's probably better than most about leveling the playing field and showing his redneck Southerners are, have all kinds of sayings and misspellings and all that as well. But I, I do think it is simply a legacy also, uh, you know, of that local color writing. And it's usually the people who are the butt of the humor who yeah. are the ones who are rendered that way, not the figures of wisdom as much. And so it is also, so it is problematical in those ways. Uh, for me, if that's, if there's anything I would change about this book or about the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, it would be to simply take the phonetical renderings of dialect and smooth out a few of the, of the terms a, a little bit. start the novel with a disconnect between what Janie wants as a 16-year-old girl who's all in blossom and how her grandmother sees the world. And what does is, what is her grandmother think she needs to do? Well, her grandmother wants to marry her off as quick as possible to an older man in the area named Logan Killicks, who is a farmer who has land, but also a small, a small home. And she wants to do that so Janie does not become a victim of some kind of uh, uh, sexual assault or some sort of sexual humiliation. Right. Does not want her getting pregnant uh, at a young age, doesn't want her getting raped. And the grandmother tells this really kind of long and and troubling family history about the levels of abuse that women in in their uh, matrilineal line have suffered, Mm -hmm. uh, including... Uh, Janie's absent mother, who has run off with a man and effectively uh, abandoned Janie to be raised. You know, the conflict here is between the pragmatics of being taken care of, which is what uh, the grandmother wants, and the romanticism of a compatible partner, which is what Janie's, in a sense, Janie's whole drive becomes. And whether she succeeds in that is questionable by the end of the novel. And I think we see the difference between the grandmother is born into slavery, becomes the seemingly willing, although we could ask ourselves what is consensual and what is not in a slave system, seemingly willing mistress to the master of the plantation, but incurs the wrath of the guy's wife. Then he goes off to the Civil War and doesn't come back. And she, while pregnant, is whipped out into the woods by the, by the angry mistress of the house and farm. And then, of course, her mother is is abused and attacked by a white teacher. And so Janie, of course, is the new generation and doesn't realize, doesn't want to believe that the world could be so unjust and that she has no choices. She wants to exercise some kind of agency. When the grandmother says it should be Logan Killicks, there's two things interesting. One is she goes, brother Logan Killicks, which means he goes to church with the grandmother, and that's why he's been approved. Mm-hmm. And how does Janie refer to him? Some old um, skull it's head. like a skull around. head. Yeah, like a skull head in the grave. So he's definitely not on the radar for the 16-year-old Janie who's all blooming and budding and all the kind of, again, natural sexual imagery that Hurston uses. And it seems like the grandma is also worried that Janie will go off on a fling herself. Yeah. And with a kind of unfair view that Janie will bring this upon herself. And that that marriage uh, with Logan Killix is absolutely unromantic. I mean, it's right. a, gr- a grungy existence of hoeing and working with the mules. Uh, I think one important passage, one key passage in the novel is when the grandmother sort of explains the social hierarchy in America and basically says white people are at the top, you know, and that the, that bl- the only people that black men can take their anger out on are black women. And she specifically equates, she tells Janie that black women are the mules. And that's an important symbol throughout the novel. And in a sense, you could almost say that the book is about Janie's refusal to be a mule in life. 
Yep. And in fact, he wants to get another mule and to have another harness. And the idea is he's putting Janie into harness when, of course, along comes her next husband, Jody Starks, who big talker tells her, you know, a woman like you shouldn't have to work like this. Everyone, you should be put up on a pedestal for everyone to admire. And she, there's a scene where she takes her apron and casts it aside and pretty obvious symbolic, you know, end of the domestic arrangement with Logan and goes off with Jody. Did anything, when you uh, read this or when you teach it to students, does anything strange ever strike you about this whole arrangement? Well, one of the things we talk about in class is the fact that uh, Janie becomes a bigamist. And yeah, there's absolutely. no there's no consequences for it. This is not the awakening where your the whole culture comes after her. Yeah, yeah. paying paying the price for that. It really is uh, uh, sort of forgotten as she moves off, comes to Eatonville with Jody Sp- Starks. So that's always a huge topic, and it's very interesting to see the idea in a class of who there really wants to punish. Janie for abandoning her husband and being married to two people at the same time right. and who understands completely the her desire to run away. Now, uh, Jody is a marginal improvement on Logan Killicks, but uh, even though this is her longest relationship, they're together about 20 years, it's not, an, it's not unproblematic, if that's no. a word. I don't think unproblematic is a word, but it is it is not it is not a romance again. Well, it starts that way, right? Yeah. And yeah. then what she realizes, and this is something you see showing up in a lot of uh, I guess we would call it early feminist literature, proto-feminist literature, uh, including uh, the awakening, which you just referenced, is that being put up on a pedestal is really no more freeing than being subjected to drudgery. It's a little more comfortable but you're still given no room to move or grow or flourish. He is one of the early movers and shakers in building up and growing Eatonville. And he becomes the early mayor of the town. And he also owns a big uh, general store and everyone is the center of the town. Everyone comes there for all their conversations, but he very much wants to control how she, he wants her to put her hair up in a do-rag because since she has a fair amount of um, European or white blood in her, her hair is a little different from any of her, compatriots. And so the men are fascinated with her long hair and he wants to control it in the way he wants to control her sexuality. There is a marvelous scene. It's just really briskly done, but very evocative where she is working. Jody from the back of the store catches another man creep up behind her and just sort of brush repeatedly the end of his uh, end of her hair. That's when he decides that she has got to wear uh, a rag. Right. And of course, there's so much loaded freight with that rag. You know, the mm-hmm. whole so-called do-rag and the stereotypical thing that Hurston herself had so rejected with the look of what a African-American servant woman was supposed to do with her hair. And her character, of course, had rejected it till this point. And then Again, we find that Jody is putting her into harness as well, but is just trying to control. It's just a different kind of harness. He essentially wants a trophy wife. Yes. And uh, he wants her to be sort of the queen of the town, put her on display, but uh, doesn't want her to speak publicly or to be a part of any of the uh, cultural life of this town. Uh, this section of the novel is heralded a lot of times because it really dramatizes the importance of the porch in African-American literature. And this mm. is where the community gathers for exchanges of gossip and news and storytelling. And Janie wants to be a part of that. Janie is a storyteller. She tells great stories. She's has great humor, but she is kind of relegated to being the audience as opposed to being a participant uh, in these sessions all the way up until the end. What breaks this marriage is a round of insults between husband and wife in which she basically tells him that if when he pulls down his pants, he looks like the change of life. The observer to that insult very specifically congratulates her for winning playing the dozens. Right. And uh, it's 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 really a hilarious moment. But 
that's the moment that that breaks Jody. Yeah, it does. And we see really in that sequence you're talking about the chapters leading up to this climactic moment and that we really see all the themes in the novel finally portrayed. There is this primacy and ability to experience life for yourself and not through others, not being told where you have to stay in this place or go do that thing, but you get to go out and live your own life, which was such a commonplace assumption for young men, but even as late as the mid-30s, not necessarily uh, a commonplace assumption for for young women, especially if they were of lower socioeconomic classes. There, the economic necessities of life drove them into drudgery and labor or work or, or motherhood or any of these things that would keep them from really living out their own wishes and, and dreams. And additionally to that is throughout the novel, there is this, and this is something that becomes very commonplace and important, significant in African-American literature. And this is seen as one of the keystone moments where this appears, uh, the ability to tell your own story, yeah. that your story is not being rendered by others, by either as a woman, by a man retelling your story, or as a black person, by a white person retelling your story, but you yourself get to tell your own story and in shaping your narrative, you're, you're granted power. So the whole novel is a frame story of her telling her story to Phoebe. And then we have moments where throughout the book, she has to enact the ability to tell her story, or I should say inhabit that need to tell her own story as a way of establishing, you know, taking the reins, seizing power. And there's, there's a very con- one of probably the biggest controversy that surrounds the novel is the fact, and this is jumping ahead just a little bit, so we'll come back and, and then go over this, but at one point she goes up on trial for uh, shooting her third uh, companion, Tea Cake, and the trial scene is absolutely not told in her voice. It's rendered in a uh, third person, uh, very distant, omniscient style. And critics have really struggled to understand in a book that is about telling your own story, why Janie never gets to speak during her trial. Uh, It's a question without an answer, but it has a consequence. Mm. And I think that one of the issues that surrounds it, I've always thought personally that probably that reflected Hurston's, the speed with which she wrote this book, because she dashed this Dash this off in seven weeks, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. But also the difficulty of, I mean, if you think about how briskly this narrative moves, a lot of it is done through, you know, again, a lot of dialogue, but the plot is really propelled along quickly. There's time dilation too. Uh, right, right. And 20 years passed, we'll hear, or yeah, over the next yeah. several years, this kind of happens. Yeah. Think about the pragmatics of rendering a courtroom scene, and and that becomes very cumbersome, I think, for a book as short as this. I mean, this this we don't want their eyes were watching God to become to kill a mockingbird, exactly, and have to, and have, to have the pontifications and the speeches and the you know the call, calling <laughs> to the stand. And when she wrote this, she didn't know that there would be critics writing books about the empowerment of African-American narrators speaking their own story. And I think she is a, she is a scientist and a perfectionist in a way. So it would have taken her a lot of work and effort and reading a lot of transcripts to do a realistic job to her satisfaction of rendering the trial. If she went into that level of detail, I think at that point, you know, you're at the three quarters or really 85% of the novel you know, that that's the last thing that happens before her return back up to Eatonville. Yeah. And I think by that point, she's just clipping along and is not really that interested in the trial other than some of the weird observations that are made such as, Oh, white men jury will never convict a black woman. Say mm-hmm. the, so the, the way the uh, black men and black women see each other, the way the white women want to protect her because they feel justified in thinking that all black women are victims of black men. And she's of course subverting that notion too, because she's only a victim of what goes on of tea cake because he's sick with rabies and is out of his head and goes after her. And I think the, uh, I think the lack of allowing her to speak at her trial or to render that courtroom scene in her first person voice makes the point that very few defendants in the criminal justice system 
articulate themselves in courtroom settings. Right. Or that are in control of how their stories are told in those settings. So you can get that argument in there as well that that at the end of the day it's probably a good choice not to do it because it has it's almost thematically ironic, I guess I would say. Now in contrast to the aging Jody Stark who ends up looking like the change of life and We'll have to talk at some point about what's actually meant by that, maybe off after we finish recording. You have TK, who's younger than her by maybe a decade or so, right? Who's good looking and flashy. And none of that's good enough for her. But what is the difference between TK and Jody and Logan that makes him the true companion of her heart? Well, at least initially, they are much more companion, companionate in their marriage. He's about 15 years younger. I think he's 26 and she's 40 at this point. But he has a notion of wanting to be with a partner and he encourages her to talk. Whereas Jody did not let her speak in public or, you know, really even in conversation other than to tell her what to do. TK, uh, you know, wants to hear her ideas. And there's this image of them working together uh, in the muck. Uh, pulling beans uh, side by side, and it, it gives a sense of a partnership. And it's in this period of time that we see, you know, the the community, this kind of migrant labor force, really celebrating the possibilities mm-hmm. of that uh, intercommunal sort of family. Uh, there's a lot of dancing. There's a lot of celebrations. It's a it's a very different sort of life than uh, she experienced in Eatonville, where, you know, the, the, the big celebration is the funeral for, uh, right. Ma- uh, for Matt's mule, yeah. where, the, where they perform this sort of mock oratory over the dead mule. But Jeannie is not a speaker at that. No. So which, which is one of the places where and she wants to speak and someone asks her to speak on more than one occasion. And Jody always interferes. Yeah. Tea cake takes her fishing instead of says, I'm going fishing. He wants, he teaches her to play checkers because she's watched other people play and has always wanted to learn and never got to at one point, of course, when they go off on their honeymoon, he takes her money and goes out gambling. Yeah. And when she gets angry, it's not that he has blown a lot of their money, but that he didn't take her her along with him and so they very much have an interesting relationship in that way and she does subvert a lot of these notions of male authority in that world and just the idea of being with such a younger man and again participating with him in all these ways we also see though for the people who do want to portray her as just a conservative writer who automatically buys into all these weird notions she rejects some of the other points of view too. So we have, for instance, this woman down in the muck when they're working down in the swamps around and the the fields around Lake Okeechobee and adjacent to the Everglades, uh, a woman named, um, and I want to say Mrs. Taylor, although I'm not sure. It's uh, Turner. Mrs. Turner, thank you, who wants to befriend Janie because she is at least three quarters white descent or whatever and is light-skinned and has you know, uh, a different kind of hair and she herself is light skinned. So she's trying to enact color discrimination among African-Americans and thinks Janie should be part of her social group and not part of TK social group who's very dark skinned. And Janie flat out rejects that. And this course, this, these notions go all the way back to Charles Chestnut writes about it. And of course, later there'll be a great book uh, passing by Nella Larson that, that talks about all this as well. And so it is, for people who do want to demonize Hurston and think of her as just simply, again, this kind of feminine Uncle Tom from the 1930s, it, you really cannot place her into that kind of box. She's, yeah. I think what you would really say is her primary interest is in realistic portrayals and in a feminist subjects rather than the struggle of equal rights for people of color. And it's not that she denies it needs to go on. It's just it's not her interest in writing. Right. One of the big themes of this book that I think makes the exact point you do is the theme of domestic abuse. Yes. Because there is the presumption in these marriages that uh, men have the authority to beat their wives if they get ornery or if they talk back or if they disobey. And honestly, what breaks this 
relationship or what where we see the real Fisher is one day tea cake does beat Janie. Mm. And that is really the turning point because it's the next day where this hurricane hits and that's, and it's, and it's all downhill from there for that relationship. I think that Hurston was very ahead of her time in calling attention to that theme of domestic abuse Mm -hmm. and also arguing in a way that was not necessarily pointing out the criminality of it, but that emphasizes the structure of authority that would have to be changed in families yes, um, where women were treated as equals. So as, as we start winding down a little bit, Kirk, our novel's title comes from a scene when the huge hurricane, the, and there are a number of big hurricanes at Florida in the, in the 30s. This one is actually based on the 1928 hurricane that hit Lake Okeechobee. And uh, one of the powerful scenes in, in the rendering of the hurricane uh, or the aftermath is the way that the black community was constri- conscripted to bury the dead. And yeah. there is a, a few pages in here where we have a sheriff ordering tea cake and other people to dump the black bodies into a hole, but to make sure the white ones uh, get the bare minimum of a of a of a coffin. And when the workers say there's no way to tell them apart, you know, the storm mm. has so damaged these bodies that you can't identify them by race, the sheriff has to come up with some way of looking at their hair and trying to figure it out. So that this notion that the natural disaster uh, upends racial you know, power structures, it kind of reverts right back to it. Right. And what's it, one of the things that's interesting about that is this is one of the only times you get a white person with any dialogue in the book. And you notice that when she's rendering poor white Southerners, she also renders their dialect phonetically. So it's not yeah. something only being done to her lesser educated black characters, but also to the, the white characters as well. Yeah. So it's, as the storm's burgeoning and they haven't been able to evacuate and they decide to stay in place. It seems like, well, they're all deciding to stay in place because since the white people aren't leaving, we won't either. Though, of course, the white people are much sturdier, bigger houses than, than the black people. And they said their decision was already made as always. Chink up your cracks, shiver in your wet beds and wait on the mercy of the Lord. The boss man might have the thing stopped for a morning anyway. It is so easy to be hopeful in the daytime when you can see the things you wish on. But it was night. It stayed night. Night was striding across nothingness with the whole round world in his hands. And then a little later, they huddled close, closer and stared at the door. They just didn't use another part of their bodies, and they didn't look at anything but the door. The time was passed for asking the white folks what to look for through that door. Six eyes were questioning God. And the whole notion of we've always been taught one way of life. We've always been taught one way to see culture. We've always been taught one way of being. And it's time to question those approaches and whether it's how Black families interact, whether it's the overall social contract, whether it's this notion that the Black people are supposed to rely upon white people for their laws and quote unquote justice, it's a big quote unquote, as we see. All that is brought together in that, that wonderful scene there, which again leads to the uh, cleaning up the dead bodies, the dog of rabies, tea cake gets bit, and later she has to fend off his attacks and kills him, goes on trial for it. And everything kind of winds down from there. The, the passages that you read point to the original book cover, which, you know, nowadays there tends to be an emphasis on the pear tree or the symbolisms of the sensuality in Jeannie's uh, journey. But the original cover of the book featured a sort of anthropomorphized cloud hovering over mm. these figures surviving the hurricane. And I think that's an interesting uh, representation of what Lippincott, the Philadelphia publisher, Mm. thought the novel was most importantly about in terms of that nature's oppression of people. So, Kurt, let's talk about whether it fits our criteria. Is it truly a great American novel? Obviously, born in Alabama, growing up in Florida, moving up to D.C. and then New York, she's American. Yep. What about its heft, its scope, its depth? It is not a long novel. I think there would probably be some argument that it is 
uh, insufficiently national in the sense that it doesn't uh, span a huge amount of space. We're, we are always in Florida. But that said, I think the essential element of plot, which is the Bildungsroman, the journey of life, sure. makes it absolutely amenable to the criteria. And again, I would simply emphasize that this is the first time that a novel was about the inner life or the growth, the emotional growth of a working class African-American. And part of the reason I think it endures is it reminds us that uh, those, those lives that we tend to overlook or we somehow tend to simplify as not having the depth or the, you know, the poetry we like to presume ours do, really do. And so on the one hand, kind of the old 1950s white critics would poo-poo the idea that love is an important theme because that would make it too quote unquote feminine or domestic. On the other hand, what we're really talking about is is emotional growth. So I definitely think it fits in terms of the plot line. Right. Well, and if you consider this in contrast to the feminine version of Buildings Roman, and there's probably a separate term for this because there are all these different, you know, Kunstlerman for the growth of an artist and so on. But if we think of it, the feminine progenitors, you might think of Jane Austen novels, which mm-hmm. are usually about you grow up and you have to figure out how to have domestic arrangements that will protect you. You have to find someone to marry uh, despite significant setbacks. Little women, you might embark on a career. You might have to deal with illness. You might have to deal with family tragedy. But nevertheless, who is going to be your protection by and by? The kind of grandmother's point of view, you got going to have pr- protection to lean on all your born days, she says to Janie at 16, who doesn't want to hear that? And even if we think of the more complicated novels from this time period, like Jane Eyre, ultimately she has to get, you know, Rochester burned up in a fire and put into a wheelchair and get the house burned down. Then she can embark on her domestic arrangements with them. Right. But here we have a novel about a woman leaving her first domestic arrangement, leaving her second domestic arrangement, leaving her third domestic arrangement and saying something like the horizons out there for you to get it. Early on the novel, it said men got to go do that, but women just had to dream about it. And at the end, Janie just rejects that. So I think it's not only are we talking about being significant for you know a young African-American woman, certainly it is, but it's a, a very important just women's novel in general, an important novel in general. It'll be, it'll be interesting down the line when we, not to give anything away, but one of our, one of our books is Saul Bellows, The Adventures of Augie Marsh where that notion of swinging from relationship to relationship and, you know, sexual initiation and experience and all of that is very much a male prerogative. Well, this is a book that says that's also a female prerogative and that the female quest is uh, every bit as significant as the, as the male one. So I definitely think it gives us a, uh, a kind of wedge for stepping back. And all of those other novels that you mentioned are about social codes. Right. And even though there is a social you know, dynamic to this novel, it is really more about the in- internal growth of, of Janie's journey. And you often wonder what happens next to her. Mm. Um, where does she go from there? You know, is she is she Hester Prynne? Does she come back to this community and put the letter back on, willingly wear it as a kind of caretaker, a maternal caretaker, which is Hawthorne's sort of idea of what all women should strive to be? Yeah. Or does she go off and have more searches of romance? My hope for her is that she goes off and has more, but we don't know because this is where the book ends. Right. But the feeling you get when she tells... Phoebe, who's going to tell them old meat bags, not talk bad about her, is that she is going to continue mm-hmm. searching for her happiness wherever she can find it. I do think it has the using referring back to our criteria, serious artistic value. Like any book from prior times, it reflects the writing conventions of its day. And you and I talked a little bit about this before we started recording. Anytime you're going back to an earlier style of writing, in this case, the phonetical rendering of dialect. 
which we see to a degree in Dickens. We see it throughout 19th century writers. We see it in Erskine Caldwell. We see it in all these other writers. Richard Wright for, uh, would be another example of that. Along with that, though, I think the themes, the development of character in this novel, the the structure of the novel, and really the beauty of the third-person prose novel make it all a serious artistic accomplishment. I mean, one way to really celebrate this novel is to note that it is a a uh, really wonderful performance of what we call free direct discourse. Yes. It is rendering of the thoughts and feelings of a protagonist, not in the first person, but in the third person. And that in many ways more than the than the eye promotes a kind of, you know, once it encourages us to identify with the character, but it also keeps us at a bit of a distance. And right. that's that's a great technique for generating some some friction and some irony in a work. We just never quite know uh, what we're supposed to think. And I think that's one of the ways in which the novel is, uh, is really effective. And do you think it'll have durability or has durability? I think so. Well, yeah. I mean, think about the fact that this book was published in 1937. It was like all of her books that pretty much immediately went out of print. It did get decent reviews, but the negative reviews tended to overshadow the positive ones. And in fact, Hurston's old mentor, Elaine Locke, tossed off some criticism of the book that infuriated her most of all, uh, even more than Richard Wright. I think the fact that the book was rediscovered 40 years later, sort of 40 years of obscurity, and we are now more than 40 years from that. And it is the, I, I think at this point, it's probably taught more often than Great Gatsby. And it's, it's certainly second, up there. Yeah, secondary or inter, and introductory lit classes. So I do think it has uh, importance. I don't think you can ever underrate Zora Neale Hurston. Or, I, excuse me, I don't think you could ever overrate Zora Neale Hurston right. in terms of her accomplishments. Uh, she is a singular figure in ter- you know, you can talk about her short stories, but also her uh, her drama. You know, she wrote a lot of a lot of plays as well. And really, we're still only scratching the surface of what we can do with her. So, I definitely think, even though this book has been uh, analyzed ad infinitum, we've got a lot of infinitum to go. <laughs> so, I do think it'll stick around for a long time. Well, one of the other features we always play upon here at the end of the Great American Novel podcast is books we think are worthy of being included into the canon. As we've said from the outset, when people worry about the canon, they seem to think it's a single shoebox and only so many artifacts will fit in that shoebox. Whereas Kirk and I believe that this shoebox is a little bit like Doctor Who's TARDIS, and it, but it'll grow and be as big on the inside as it needs to be. And it's not necessarily about there's not enough room. It's rather when things are worthy, they should be included. And Kirk, you've got a great idea for one we should uh, add this time. What is that? Well, listeners may have been watching recently the Showtime adaptation of James McBride's 2013 novel, The Good Lord Bird, uh, which features Ethan Hawke as John Brown in the build-up to the Harper's Ferry Raid. The Showtime series is, is pretty funny, but the novel itself, The Good Lord Bird, is a comic masterpiece. It's in the mold of Huckleberry Finn, but is a kind of revisionist history. Uh, and it's one that I think takes no real prisoners. Uh, there's a scene in which uh, Frederick Douglass gets drunk and chase after a girl. Uh, imagine trying to do that in uh, no. historical fiction today. I no, can't do that. But I think part of what McBride is doing is he is sort of demythologizing history. And certainly in the portrait of John Brown, we tend to have a sort of reverence for a crazy mystic. And I think part of his appeal is the sort of lure of cult figures or mm. uh, visionaries. He's a martyr. Right. You know, I think I think McBride is really just making mincemeat out of almost all of our most sacred notions of what is historically important, hmm. replacing them in some ways with 
other things that are only currently coming about. A big mm. strain of the novel is the fact that the protagonist, Henry Shackelford, passes as a girl in order to survive. And, you know, a large part of the, the story is about him trying to fend off the offenses or the sexual exploitation that is treated much more seriously, I think, in, in works by women authors. Right. So it's a lacerating type of comedy. It sometimes gets criticized for not being as uh, humane, but I do think there is a bit of a value, especially when we are working our way through what notions of American identity perpetuate structures of of racism in just kind of burning everything down with a reverence and then seeing what we do next. Hmm. Do I think this is a great American novel? Not yet. I think it needs a few more years before it will be accepted that way. Do I think it will? Possibly. It has hmm. all of the tools or all of the things that's needed um, but the question will be, I think, how people regard the comedy at the end of the day. Huh. It may be a little too, um, almost maybe too irreverent for it to to really garner that garner that type of accolade. I'm almost thinking Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad may beat it coming around the curve. Sure, but that's for the future to decide. But. Bride's a brilliant writer, and I think I think this book is absolutely in its use of comedy and genius. So, coming up next is a book near and dear to both our hearts, and I should particularly mention to our listeners here who don't know if or if they don't know that my co-host is the the editor of the F. Scott Fitzgerald Review, and our next book is going to be on Kirk. We are going to do The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and we're going to do it because. I have gone a day without reading it, and I <laughs> feel totally lost. So, no, we will take it on. It's time to take it on. Obviously, I think we're both pretty partisan for the book, and uh, we'll have a lot of fun uh, talking about its various themes and issues. Thank you for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, please leave her a favorable review. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others. Mastered Authority with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, fo focusing on the short story of F. Scott Fitzgerald, reading McCarthy with myself and guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can always email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like, uh, we are always interested in your uh, suggestions for what you think a great American novel is. Otherwise, we simply appreciate you listening to us. So thank you very much. Thanks again. Thanks.